Chapter 26 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 26 At Home and at Work Again. September 16th, 1856, Miss Dix set sail from Liverpool to New York on the steamship Baltic. Two full years had now gone by since she had set foot on English soil, then seeking recuperation from the exhausting labors of her previous fourteen years, and from the overwhelming blow of the veto of her twelve million two hundred and twenty-five thousand acre bill of the dreamy lotus-eating way in which during the intervening time she had surrendered her tired body and mind to the luxury of rest enough has been detailed in previous chapters it remains only to give an instance or two of the spirit of congratulation and blessing that now found vent in farewell words from english friends no more touching illustration of this can be presented than the following brief good-bye letters from dr d hack Took and from the venerable dr john connolly the peer perhaps, in the history of insanity of Pinnell and Samuel Tuke. Quote, York, England, September 14, 1856. My dear friend, I have pretty much given up the pleasing illusion of seeing you before sailing. I am inclined to envy you the feelings which you must have in the retrospect of what you have enabled to do since you set foot on British land. I cannot doubt that the day will come when many, very many, will rise up to call you blessed. Blessed to them who, until they have been relieved from their bodily infirmities, cannot thank you for all you have done, and the yet more you have longed to be able to do for them. Your truly attached friend, Daniel H. Tuke. End quote. Quote, Hanwell, England, August 19, 1856. My dear madam, your words of approbation, dear Miss Dix, are very precious to me for i honor you and your great labors for the benefit of your fellow-creatures in many ways god bless you my dear lady i trust that there are regions where after this world all will be more congenial to such spirits and to those who sympathize with you and share your good and noble aspirations ever faithfully yours j connolly End quote. Happily, the home voyage proved continuously smooth and sunny. The one only trace of physical fear that can be detected in Miss Dix's courageous nature was fear of the sea. Embarked on it, she confessed herself always haunted with an undefined sense of apprehension. In the loss on the return voyage of the Arctic, the ship on which she herself had crossed over to England, several dear friends had perished, and the shock of this 
had added to the constitutional feeling of dread with which she had always regarded the Atlantic. This time, however, all went so prosperously that she was able at the very close of the voyage to write back to England, quote, We are still getting on well, and already land birds come to the vessel for food and rest. They are very familiar and eat from our hands. One came into the open window near me while at dinner today, rested on the table by the captain's plate, picked up some crumbs, and finally satisfied, flew away, perhaps for the distant land fifty miles off. End quote. From the insistent urgency of the appeals for renewed work which, from various quarters of the United States and of Canada, forthwith greeted Miss Dix on her return to her native land, one can only wonder that the birds, of which she so tenderly speaks as alighting on the table of the Baltic to pick up crumbs, were not in reality seriously-minded carrier pigeons, each with a momentous little billet under its wing from Halifax or Nashville or Columbia, addressed DLD, immediate delivery. All were of one tenor. We need fresh extensions. We must have another hospital in another part of the state. We must get large appropriations this coming winter. Everything missteers when your hand is off the helm. In exact contrast with all this, it had been the hope of many of Miss Dix's old asylum friends that she would now be able to devote herself to writing a book in which she should carefully digest the results of her immense range of observation in Europe and in the East. She was then fifty-four years old, and the habits of a lifetime are not to be altered. Her whole soul was bent now on fruitfully applying what she had seen and learned to the actual needs of the present, rather than on sitting quietly down to formulate general principles. Indeed, it becomes ever clearer, as Miss Dix's work is carefully studied into, that in the actual founding of the many asylums she so fondly called her children, her labors were destined to bear about the same proportional relation to the coming toils demanded for their extension and full development, as does the travail of the actual mother in bringing her little ones into the world to the subsequent nursing, training, watching over, and educating them, till they shall have reached the full estate of manhood or womanhood. A great feat it no doubt was to carry a bill for the establishment of a new asylum through a state legislature. And yet here lay but the first triumph over ignorance and apathy. To get the institution well manned, to help the asylum to endear itself to community through the cures affected, or the chronic misery relieved, to raise up friends for it who would always bear in mind its first estate of bareness and destitution, 
and try to make it homelike and supply it with means for industrial occupation and amusement to get ready for the day of needed enlargement all these cares and anxieties the fond and thoughtful asylum mother bore perpetually on her mind in truth it was with a literal godly jealousy that she watched over these young institutions yearning to see the physicians and attendants a consecrated band martyrs if need be in a sacred cause on them she felt it rested to win for the cause full reverence and support never sparing herself the ideal of absolute devotion she illustrated in action far more than preached by word is touchingly shown in the following extract from a letter written to her so late as the advanced age of seventy-one by dr j m cleveland of the hudson river state hospital Quote, your devotion to duty and starting off in that pitiless monday's storm touched all our hearts the lesson it inculcated was more than a chapter of moral maxims and i hope we may never forget it no she could not stop to write a book the cry from so many quarters come over and help us was too loud and continuous accordingly it is simply what was to be expected to find her before the close of the year writing from as far north as Toronto, Canada West. Quote, it is truly sorrowful to find so much suffering through neglect, ignorance, and mismanagement, but I hope for better things at no distant time. The weather has been severe and stormy, but in proportion as my own discomforts have increased, my conviction of the necessity of search into the wants of the friendless and afflicted has deepened if i am cold they are cold if i am weary they are distressed if i am alone they are abandoned there now lay before miss dix until the breaking out in eighteen sixty one of the great civil war which imperatively turned her energies in a new direction, more than four years of unremitting activity. They were the years of her life marked by obtaining larger appropriations of money for purely benevolent purposes than, probably, it was ever given to any other mortal in the old world or the new to raise the united states has earned the somewhat dubious fame of being the land of millionaires and the rivalry is growing ever faster and more furious who shall pile up the most fabulous amount set down to his own private credit unquestionably under this last proviso miss dix must humbly yield precedence to the astors vanderbilts j goulds and others of the plurocratic hierarchy none the less will the faithful historian have to record the fact that of the millionaires of charity she easily heads the list 
These were the years of the enlargement of nearly all the asylums she had founded, as well as the years marked by the foundation of a number of new ones. To condense, therefore, the narrative of this period within any fairly readable limits, there is but one possible course to pursue. It is to omit and omit and omit. All that can be done in this and the succeeding chapter is to present a limited selection of letters and memoranda and let the reader multiply at will their main tenor. The internal history of the personnel of a great insane asylum is, to anyone who has been privileged to read so immense a mass of correspondence as Miss Dix left behind her, one of the most curious, baffling, and often tragic it is possible to conceive. From the sheer necessity of the case, the feeling of a superintendent and of his assistant physicians must often be that of men who are sleeping over a powder magazine. Outside is a jealous public swift to conceive dire suspicions. Inside is a mass of disorganized human nature, the prey of wild hallucinations and shapes of degraded passion, cunning, deceitful, and unable to distinguish between fact and fancy. Pass through the wards, and forthwith will rational-seeming men and attractive women stop you, and with streaming eyes begin to tell you such stories of the brutality to which they have been subjected by the violence or sensuality of the superintendent a man perhaps of the elevation of character and consecration of life of a bell woodward or kirkbride as would for a moment stagger the faith of abraham so quietly logically and movingly are the stories told nor is this all there are besides scores of nurses and attendants as well as a great department, sometimes under its own separate head, of cooks, scullions, and workmen. A quotum of these are inevitably persons of ill-regulated character. Often they have to be discharged for unfaithfulness. Then comes their day of revenge. They have their mates, some of them likewise discontented. How easy, then, out of such a storehouse of inflammable material to start a story that will run like wildfire, and which can be supported before a committee of investigation by the evidence of two or three perhaps beautiful women who tell so circumstantially their piteous story and are so heart-moving in their appeal for redress that the reputation of the most revered superintendent in the land can hardly hold its own in the minds of the directors of his own institution. Soon the outside public has got hold of the terrible revelation of what is going on behind the bars of the asylum, and furious factions are formed, as deaf to the voice of reason as any of the inmates within. 
In cases like the above, Miss Dix was appealed to again and again, and often her clear judgment and thorough knowledge of the workings of insanity enabled her to disabuse the minds of committees who had been made to harbor unjust suspicions of the purest and most devoted men. Though her decisions entailed upon her much abuse, she never shrank from doing her duty. As an instance, therefore, of her religiously exalted self-reliance when she felt herself to be in the right, the following short extract from a letter to her friend, Miss Heath, is of interest. There had been trouble in the internal working of the asylum in Worcester, Mass., a conflict of authority between matron and steward, as to which Miss Dix, on appeal, had taken decided ground. The two belligerent parties had carried their grievance to the outside public of Worcester, one faction of which had betaken itself to that palladium of modern liberties, the press, and had there roundly abused Miss Dix. Quote, March 24th, 1857. My dear Annie, do not take too much to heart that which mistaken people say in Worcester, it is as the weight of a feather to me. I am right. What harm can these do me? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom should I fear? The Lord is my defense on my right hand. Of whom should I be afraid? I am steadfast in his might. Six months later, there occurs a passage in a letter to Mrs. Rathbone of Liverpool, throwing light on another species of annoyance with which Miss Dix was constantly beset. The annoyance too familiarly known in the United States as that of the importunity of office-seekers. For years she had been exposed to it in her own land, but now the reputation she had gained in Scotland, and the number of desirable positions that would be opened up through the creation of new county asylums, had, it seemed, acted on aspiring Scotch medical minds very much as it would have on the minds of the brethren in America, thus demonstrating once again how one touch of nature makes the whole world kin. I have had letters from abroad, she now writes, urging me to commend various parties to official places in regard to the insane. I, of course, decline such interference, considering it out of my line of activity. On this point, at least, of refusing, even on local Scotch solicitation, to reenact the now popular part of the American invader, Miss Dix was inexorable. Meanwhile, at home, her power of patronage was constantly growing larger and larger. No one else in the country, and that at the appeal of high public officials throughout the South and West, exercised to such an extent the right of investiture or had so many medical livings at command. 
but no man ever helped his cause by personal solicitation of her influence. Her own sense of fitness for the post decided her action, and a recommendation given, she sought to have it kept an inviolable secret. So strong indeed was this feeling with her that, as personally told to the writer of her biography by Dr. John W. Ward of Trenton, New Jersey, on the occasion of his learning from his trustees some years after his appointment as superintendent that he owed it to the emphatic recommendation of Miss Dix, and then, in cautiously proceeding to thank her, she turned sharply on him and denounced it as a betrayal of confidence that he had ever been permitted to know the fact. It is easy to imagine the devoutness of the exclamation, O Sancta Simplicitas, with which such an account would be read by the average American senator or member of the House of Representatives. July 21st, 1857, finds Miss Dix beginning a letter in Cleveland, Ohio, to Mrs. Rathbone, and finishing it in Zelianople, Pennsylvania. An entirely new asylum to be founded near Pittsburgh, an institution on the plan of the Rath House near Hamburg, Germany, to be studied, and a zealous attempt to be made to confer a real benefit on the stagnant life of a dying community by affording it an opportunity to contribute to the prospected hospital are here the visible straws which show the swift and strong set of the current. To Mrs. Rathbone, quote, Cleveland, Ohio, July 21st, 1857. I am here only for a few days and proceed to Zelianople and thence to Pittsburgh, where I hope to complete what I have begun and advanced there. I have induced the managers of the proposed benevolent institution to sell the farm which had been purchased and which is not well situated, and take a magnificent location for a hospital on a fine elevated site which I found on the Ohio River, eight miles from Pittsburgh, and which is both salubrious and cheerful, joined with outlooks of rare beauty associated with some elements of grandeur. Zelianople, Pennsylvania, August 10th. I was broken off from my writing more than a fortnight since. Here at Zelianople, I am both looking for a farm well situated and well watered and studying an institution having chiefly the features of the celebrated Raw House at Horn near Hamburg. It is a new reformatory erected by a noble-minded clergyman of the German Lutheran persuasion. One of those men of rare power, Fenelon-like spirit, and apostolic self-sacrifice whom we occasionally see rising up to show the astonished world how much one man can do through the force of moral power without riches save the riches of a sanctified spirit. 
I proceed tomorrow to economy, hoping to secure from the followers of that singular man, Rap, the Swabian peasant, who emigrated with his family to the United States more than fifty years ago, a contribution for hospital uses. The large wealth accumulated by singular skill and industry, before the death of their leader and founder, Rap, is stored in secret, and no doubt, before many years, will a sheet to the commonwealth. They have no longer hopes or expectations. The prophetic declaration of their founder are falsified, and now a handful remain where once their name was legion. One seeks of them charities as conferring on their stagnant life a real benefit. Lately, they gave $500 to the new hospital. The above-quoted extracts must suffice for furnishing glimpses of the indefatigable worker in 1857. The new year of 1858 may well enough open with a letter of date, Oneida, New York, January 25th. To Mrs. Rathbone, quote, Oneida, New York, January 25th, 1858. Snow two feet deep. Thermometer 27 degrees below zero. Gas burners easily lighted by the spark transmitted by the finger. Thus, it is not difficult to realize the severity of the cold so often described by Arctic voyagers. Do you hear anything of Mrs. Chisholm, that woman of transcendent worth? I have often wished I could do something that would show her how much good hearts in this Western world appreciate her and her works. How is Miss Carpenter succeeding? I have great faith that the school and discipline on the Akbar will finally succeed. Our work of reform seems gigantic and most discouraging if the whole field is taken at once. But if each does his or her part, we may hope for final success. I saw the announcement of Father Matthew's death with a sense of thankfulness that the good man was released from the infirmities which have so increased upon him as to arrest his usefulness and make life now for many months a burden and a source of anxiety to himself and friends. Blessed be his memory. The sudden death of Hugh Miller is distressing in its manner, but while all who knew and appreciated him will regret him and his abridged usefulness, they will feel that he is released from a heavy dispensation, viz. the total loss of his reasoning faculties, a danger which I fully perceive, and which I knew he dreaded two years since. He was a remarkable man, and will not be forgotten. Your steadfast friend, D. L. Dix. The last letter concludes with a sympathetic description of the burial of a dear friend, Reverend Samuel Gilman, D.D., the Unitarian minister of Charleston, South Carolina, 
a man characterized by such sanctity of spirit that his funeral services were reverentially attended by Catholic priests, Jewish rabbis, Episcopalian rectors, and Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian ministers. Only a few years before his death, Dr. Gilman had paid Miss Dix the two lines of reverential tribute which are here subjoined. Quote, to D.L.D. One pain alone thy visit gives, our shame, to live so far beneath thy own great aim. End quote. Evidently, the year 1859 was a very congenial and happy one to the subject of this biography. The earlier part of it was spent in Texas, in that far away and before unvisited section of the Union, where naturally she had expected to find herself an entire stranger, she was overjoyed at the cordiality of her reception. Very pleasant is it, therefore, after wading through endless files of letters that are bare itineraries or discussions of hospital issues, without a word of personal revelation, to light upon a few in which free expression is given to the natural delight and manifestations of outspoken sympathy and admiration which must have and ought to have yielded keen pleasure. The first of these letters, to intimate friends in which she expresses her delight in the exuberant testimonials of kindliness she now encountered, is to Mrs. Hare of Philadelphia, and bears date, Austin, Texas, March 28, 1859. In it, after giving a vivid account of two days and nights of staging experience, exhausting and dangerous to a high degree, she goes on, quote, You ask perhaps how I occupied myself under these adverse circumstances. Why meditated how poor, sick, insane people were to live and being transported such distances over such roads. I am thankful I have come, because I find much to do, and people take me by the hand as a beloved friend. My eyes fill with tears at the hourly heart-warm welcome, the confidence, the cordial goodwill, and the succession of incidents, proving that I do, in very truth, dwell in the hearts of my countrymen. I am so astonished that my wishes in regards to institutions, my opinions touching organization, are considered definitive. A gentleman in the state service said to me, You are a moral autocrat. You speak, and your word is law. People say, Oh, you are no stranger. We have known you years and years. A second letter of like tenure was written in reply to one from Mrs. Samuel Torrey, who had addressed her thus, quote, I have been desired by Mr. Gannett to inform you that a man called upon him a few days ago 
and put into his hands one hundred dollars for you from the mother of a shipwrecked seaman who had been saved by one of your lifeboats when wrecked off the coast of Newfoundland. Mr. Gannett questioned the man, but could not elicit any information respecting the woman. The money was to be employed to assist poor seamen. Miss Dix's reply runs as follows quote, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, April 7, 1859. My dear friend, Mr. Torrey can hold the $100 on interest till I can find leisure to apply it advantageously. I shall be glad to increase its amount a little by adding something to it myself. I can build another lifeboat, which I want. I have been needing lifeboats myself in the Gulf of Mexico last month. We just escaped foundering. In fact, for twenty-four hours, the captain did not leave his station on the deck. In Texas, everybody was kind, obliging, and most attentive. I had a hundred instances that filled my eyes with tears. I did not imagine anybody would know me there, but on the contrary, I was claimed and acknowledged as a dear friend in such wise as has made a lasting impression on my heart and mind. I was taking a dinner at a small public house on a wide, lonely prairie. The master stood, with the stage waybill in his hand, reading and eyeing me, I thought, because I was the only lady passenger. But when I drew out my purse to pay as usual, his quick expression was, No, no, by George, I take no money from you. Why, I never thought I should see you, and now you are in my house. You have done good to everybody for years and years. Make sure now there's a home for you in every house in Texas. Here, wife, this is Miss Dix. Shake hands and call the children. Don't think me conceited in relating this incident. It is one of a hundred in Texas, one of a thousand this winter all through the South. I am constantly surprised by spontaneous expressions of the heartiest goodwill, and I may well be careful what I demand for hospitals, etc., for my work is unquestioned, and so I try to be very prudent and watchful. Yet another letter to her friend Miss Heath, written December 8, 1859, from Columbia, South Carolina, bears witness to the same enthusiastic gratitude testified to her by the people of another state. To Miss Annie Heath, quote, I arrived here Saturday night, greeted and welcomed on all sides by private friends and public authorities. I have really been quite astonished at the public expressions of welcome. I am very happy in knowing I am much beloved by my fellow citizens in this part of the Union. We will prove our regard for you by our acts in behalf of those for whom you plead, said a senator 
who spoke as the representative of the body. I could not measure half the pleasant words uttered. Our state will always welcome you as to a home, and so we will eat at our firesides among the wives and children. Yes, yes, that we will, sounded forth spontaneously from all who were present. I have sent you egotistical lines, Annie. Keep them to yourself. End quote. It is a matter for congratulation that the friend to whom the above letter was addressed did not keep these lines to herself, but carefully put them away in a safe place from which some day they should emerge to the light of day. Why should not the subject of such demonstrations of enthusiastic love openly rejoice in them? Truly, they had been bought with a price. But a few days before this hearty reception in the hall of the South Carolina House of Representatives, she had written from New Orleans, quote, I have traveled out of ninety-three days and nights past, thirty-two days and nights, and this of necessity, so that I lie down now and sleep any hour I can, to make up lost time, and today I am feeling a good deal refreshed. I am bound from this place to Baton Rouge, and thence by land to Jackson, Louisiana, next to Bayou Sarah, to Vicksburg by river, thence by railroad to Jackson, Mississippi, after that to Memphis, thence to St. Louis, thence up the Missouri to the State Hospital at Fulton, returning to Jacksonville, Illinois, and to Springfield. To all which she adds from Jackson, Mississippi, so far as I can see a favorable impression is made, and there is a probability that I shall get an appropriation of $80,000. I ask this winter in different states more than a third of a million. End quote. It was at this period of her exacting career that the new invention of the sleeping car, that sweet oblivious antidote, to the weary leagues of American railway travel was first brought into practical use. Naturally enough, it might have been prophesied that of all the women of the land to welcome the blessing, Miss Dix, who had sat bolt upright through such an infinity of nights, would have led the van. Amusing is it, however, in this present year of 1890, to read her first aghast impressions of these whirling dormitories, and to see how strongly they shocked that delicate sense of feminine propriety which was so marked a characteristic of her nature. Quote, Shall be here, she writes Miss Heath, from Jackson, Mississippi, till the 30th, when I go to Columbia, South Carolina, a journey of three days and three nights. I saw some sleeping cars. That was enough. Nothing would induce me to occupy one of them. They are quite detestable. I did make one night's experiment later, between Pittsburgh and Cincinnati. That will suffice for the rest of life. <laughs> 
I cannot suppose that persons of decent habits, especially ladies, will occupy them, unless some essential changes are made in their arrangements and regulations. End quote. One farther letter will fitly conclude the narration of this fruitful year, 1859. It contains the fullest detailed description Miss Dix has left behind of any of her brilliant dashes of energy and courage. Written in a vein of humorous enjoyment of the scene, it unconsciously furnishes a striking exhibition of that lightning-swift dispatch with which, however overweighted with other cares, she stood ready to turn instantly aside to right a wrong appealing from any new quarter. To Mrs. William Rathbone, quote, Did I write you an account of my affair with, or in connection with, some kidnapped Indians? If it is briefly recapitulated, no harm will come. But you must have thought it singular at least, if you saw the New York papers, that my name was in such odd juxtaposition with street riots and acts of violence endangering life. Footnote. Several New York papers had given highly sensational accounts of the attack of the rescuing party as led by Miss Dix in person. End footnote. While in Albany... In the State Library last month, several persons being with me consulting on pending questions, a white man and an Indian entered, and the former said, There is Miss Dix. Come, tell her your story. It was this. Near Syracuse, in central New York, is an Indian settlement of 500 souls. A company of circus riders and strolling players visiting Syracuse thought it might be a good speculation to entice some of the Indians from this village to New York, 300 miles distant, embark with them for Europe, and make a show of the Aborigines for their own profit. To this end they proceeded to the Indian village, selected their dupes, six lads of about fourteen, and several squaws with one or two infants. Promising them fine shows and sights in Syracuse, they induced them to go there. This excited no other attention than a little feeling of envy amongst those who could not witness the promised exhibitions. After the plays were over, the above-named Indians were persuaded to get on a night train of cars and take a little ride. This little ride ended only in the city of New York, and still held by blinding promises they were taken to a remote tavern on the outskirts of the city, and there strictly watched till the vessel was ready in which the company designed to embark. Meanwhile, one of the boys managed to escape and found his way to his own people, reporting the captivity of his companions. The father of two of the boys, a chief, hastened to the city, 
but the journey consumed his little stock of money, and however bold and at home in the forests, the mighty city of New York, and the people with whose language he was so little familiar thronging everywhere, yet unheeding his perplexities, made him fearful and troubled. He came up the river again, as far as Albany, saw a man on the street he knew, and related his troubles. This man, a doorkeeper at the state capitol, brought him to me, and after a few minutes' consideration, I, taking with me the Indian, proceeded to the office of the regent of the university and asked the professor to attend me to the executive chambers. They were crowded, but the governor was my friend and my host, for I was at that time a guest at Government House. At once I stated the case, asking authority to send to the city for the release of the captive Indians. The state attorney was sent for, but not being particularly prompt, nor giving in the sequence any very lucid opinion, I turned away. The governor gave the Indian sufficient money to pay his expenses back by cars to New York 130 miles. I took leave and sent a page to the Senate chamber for one of the city senators. That body was specially engaged. I repeated my message urgently, and Mr. Spencer came. I stated the case. He wrote an order to the chief of police, directing him to make search for the missing parties and deliver them to the chief, and by all means prevent their embarkation. I then addressed a letter to the district attorney of New York, and now it wanted but ten minutes to the departure of the cars south. I bade the Indian run to the station, an Indian can always run, giving him the sealed packages, and to say, on arriving in the city, to the conductor of the train, that he wanted a policeman to guide him to the captain's office, being there to deliver the papers and wait the result. It appears all went well thus far. The chief of police detailed a party of policemen, and the show company were found occupying a low tavern in the suburbs and concealed in a back room where they watched their Onondaga captives. The five boys were immediately taken, though some opposition and a show of fight were made. The next day, a second party went out to take the remainder of the Indians, and now thirty or forty partisans of the company, rowdies of the baser sort, being collected, a fight commenced. The police were assailed with stones, knives, and blows, but eventually carried their point besides arresting some of the leaders of the affray and the landlord. The Indians were all conveyed to the North River Station, free passage given to Albany, and dispatched to the seat of government with a letter to Governor King, and the next day some news scavenger threw into the columns of a newspaper a history of the affair with embellishments, and, using my name as chief 
patroness of all people in adversity or otherwise oppressed, so oddly mixed up the story as to make it look very much as if I were not content with the more quiet part of the performance, but had heroically led the attack, not by pen, but by armed force. I send this hastily written letter off without looking to see what is so carelessly put together. I invite myself to be your guest five years from now, all of us surviving that period, and I trust you will live many long and good years. God bless you and yours. Truly yours, D. L. Dix. End of chapter 26